0: Hello everyone, this is Sal from Bitcoin Taxes. Welcome to our podcast. Each episode we speak to an expert with knowledge- related to cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. Today's episode will be a roundtable discussion with Andrew Gordon and Zach Ziliak. We'll be discussing the increased visibility and usability of crypto as a payment and investment, the politics of crypto with the incoming administration, and we'll also be discussing year-end tax planning when it comes to crypto. As I mentioned, our guests are Andrew Gordon and Zach Ziliak. Thank you both for being here today. Thank you Thank very, you very Sal. much Sal. Of course, of course. And so I'll give you guys a brief intro. Andrew um, is a past guest on the show. He's been on a few times, a friend of the show for sure. And he is a tax attorney and CPA at Gordon Law and practices with a strong focus on cryptocurrency. He has helped hundreds of virtual currency investors file crypto tax returns, amend previous returns, and fight crypto-related audits and tax bills. His clients range from casual investors to major blockchain developers. And Zach is, this is his first time on the show. He is an attorney with Zilliac Law, a law firm that focuses on blockchain and the financial industry, as well as entertainment, intellectual property, and corporate law. Zach worked at a hedge fund and an investment bank prior to law school. He and his team represent crypto fund managers, token issuers, digital asset exchanges, money transmitters, and blockchain entrepreneurs. So very excited for you both to be here. Andrew, why don't you give us a little bit more information about yourself for anybody who's not familiar with you?
1: Sure. So again, my name is Andrew Gordon, and I'm an attorney and CPA, and I've been practicing in the crypto industry since late 2013, early 2014, uh, where prices were vastly different than they are uh, today. And uh, 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 when we're filming this, we're approaching a a new all-time high, and hopefully we break into it uh, very soon. And so a much different situation. But over the years, we've worked with many different investors, crypto businesses, and all sorts of different tax-related issues, such as audits, responding to IRS letters, but also simple uh, things such as preparing tax returns and reconciling cryptocurrency transactions. Uh, And in fact, we're the partner with Bitcoin.tax for the full prepared tax return preparation option as well.
0: Yes, definitely. Thank you for mentioning that. And it's uh, gone very well. And for anybody listening, be sure to check it out at bitcoin.tax full service. We'll, uh, we'll throw up a link in the description as well. Um, but yeah, great introduction. And I'm glad you mentioned the Bitcoin price because that's something we'll definitely talk about today. Um, and Zach, uh, again, Zach Ziliak. thank you again for being here. And if you can give us a little bit more information about yourself, aside from what I kind of said, just give the listeners a little bit of um, info about yourself.
2: Sure. And thank you again for having me, Sal. Mm -hmm. So let's see. My name is Zach Zilliak. I lead a team of 10 attorneys who operate under the clever name of Zilliak Law. And like Andrew, I've been involved in cryptocurrency back since 2014. Unlike Andrew, I don't have the same kind of background in tax as he has. I do come from a finance background. I have an MBA. I went to grad school in math, worked at an investment bank for a while. was a quant there, then head trader at a hedge fund for some time. And so a lot of our clients are in the financial space, which works well with crypto, given that there's been such a well-established tie-in between the two, whether through DeFi now or through all the various ways financial companies have tried to make use of digital assets and blockchain technology, such as through raising money with ICOs, STOs, call them what you will, mm. all the various crypto hedge funds that are out there, and just soup to nuts we are in that space. So no, I'm happy to be here and happy to see that crypto is just very recently now getting a new breath of interest in the uh, population at large. It has been a niche industry with a lot of hardcore adherence for quite some time. But now with, I think you mentioned PayPal and other companies starting to pay attention to and allowing this allowing access to Bitcoin and various other cryptocurrencies, we're seeing yet more uptake of digital assets, and I'm happy to see it happening.
0: Yes, absolutely. And first of all, very impressive background for both you guys. So uh, always happy to have really smart people on the podcast to explain some uh, difficult concepts. So again, thank you both. And that's actually what I wanted to start talking about was kind of the, first of all, Bitcoin price is skyrocketing. As we're recording, it's close to 18000 It did go a little bit over 18000 I believe.
1: Yeah. 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 So it hit. Right.
0: Yeah, it hit a little over eighteen thousand, then kind of dropped back down a few hundred dollars. But right now it's at like seventeen nine. And the end of twenty seventeen, of course, the, the highest price of Bitcoin was, uh, you know, around twenty thousand dollars, and that was the time that brought so much hype to the cryptocurrency space. A lot more people got involved. It really made Bitcoin mainstream. And now we're very close to that price. And I think a lot of people have been saying that it feels different this time. Let me go to you first, Andrew. Do you agree, does this price increase feel different to you or do you disagree? Does it kind of feel like 2017 all over again? No,
1: I think it feels different. Um, One of the reasons is that back in 2017, it was the ICO craze. And so there were all different tokens being issued. And people were having to buy Bitcoin and Ethereum in order to buy these tokens. And so uh, a lot of that boom was fueled by the ICO craze. Now in 2020, we're not seeing any of that, or we're seeing very little of that. Yes, there are new token projects emerging, but it's not to the same degree, at least that I've seen, and maybe Zach can speak to his experience as well, uh, as in uh, 2017. So this seems to be more fueled by Uh, in part, greater mass adoption Mm -hmm. over the years. There are more and more people that have uh, established Coinbase accounts or started to buy cryptocurrency or even just heard of it. And uh, we've talked previously about how the 2019 tax return had a question about it. That's advertising for cryptocurrency. (laughs) The 2020 tax return will have a question front and center. That is a further advertisement for cryptocurrency. And even just discussion about that is, is an advertisement for it.
0: It's funny. Um, I don't so, think I've ever yeah. heard it referred to or looked at it from that perspective as an advertisement, but that's a great point. I mean, for somebody that's not familiar with crypto, seeing it on, on their IRS form, they may very well be kind of enticed to see what this is all about if the IRS is talking about it.
1: That, and I think it also shows that it's here to stay. Mm-hmm. If the IRS is giving valuable real estate on the tax return, that that after all of their different bureaucratic levels, they approved putting front and center The question about cryptocurrency, that shows that they're they're acknowledging that it's here. They're not trying to destroy it, but they're asking for compliance with it. So I think that also creates greater confidence uh, in in the public uh, to invest in it, because it's not just something that the government's going to crush, which is something that I think at least in the beginning, people were afraid of, but doesn't really exist, uh, at least in my mind anymore. So I think that's a, a big part. And then the final aspect would just be institutional investors. Sure, in the earlier years, there were a lot of institutional players coming in and buying cryptocurrency, but I think we've seen uh, more and more adoption um, by larger funds, by even banks and financial institutions. So all of that capital is coming in as a hedge against uh, inflation, uh, the US dollar, a hedge against other investments, especially during this uncertain time. And so I think it's just a combination of all of these different things um, during this very strange 2020 year that's leading to this increase.
0: Yeah, well, certainly a strange 2020 year, that's for sure. First, let me just say, I think everything is different this year because of some of the things that Andrew said. There's so much more mainstream focus on crypto. And that to me is kind of what is making it feel different, the price increase this year. So Zach, what, what are your opinions on that?
2: So, yes, I know the conflict makes for a good podcast, but I'm afraid I have to agree with <laughs> with Andrew 100% here. That is, this price increase feels more real this time. Mm-hmm. In 2017, it was such a rapid growth in the second half of that year. And yes, it was driven largely by the ICO craze and such, where there was very little due diligence done on investments. I mean, part of what we do is also litigation. So we've seen our share of fights over fraud from back then and companies that just their business plan seemed to be, we are the blockchain of X. And that was where it ended. And that's not really enough to make a business now. Yes. Tokens are still being issued, but not nearly the size before. And such as are out there are being vetted much more carefully than was the case back then. This has been a much slower burn too. That is the rise to 18,000 has happened over a longer period. It's not just this craze, you know, tulip mania and such. Mm-hmm. So it feels more real for that reason. You mentioned the strange year that we have of 2020 with the pandemic, with people trapped at home, with people doing everything online now with Zoom and Google Meet and such, with people afraid to touch paper money and move things back and forth like this. We've seen an increase in use of payment services, electronic payment services of various sorts, including, including digital assets, including black, uh, Bitcoin and such. We also see now PayPal and others saying you can now pay through Bitcoin. So that's led to increased adoption. I think that DeFi, as people have come to pay attention to decentralized finance, this has democratized a lot of access to fund management and such, which has meant that the retail investor starts seeing that, hey, you know what? Blockchain does not end with Bitcoin. There are other things out there. There has been increased adoption of smart contracts in a wide variety of areas. So now people see blockchain showing up here and there. It's not just one topic, blockchain, one trick pony, Bitcoin is killer app and it ends right there, but rather, oh, you can do this with blockchain, do that with blockchain. That I think has led to more adoption. Um, Yes, there's still a lot of work to be done on the regulatory front, but I think there is increasing clarity, which has helped some. And... Yes. For all the reasons that Andrew laid out already, this feels like a genuine rise with true economics behind it, as opposed to just fear of missing out.
0: Yeah. So there was a conference the other day that I attended. It was um, by uh, one of the guests of our podcast, Connie Gallippi, who is the CEO of BitGive. They had their first uh, conference. It was called DeFi, Decentralized Philanthropy, uh, which was like a kind of, you know, Cool play on words there. Uh, But I was at that conference. I attended that conference. It was great. Um, and somebody had said that this feels different this time because there's all the infrastructure was kind of built um, in the past couple of years since that 2017 spike. There's been so much infrastructure built. And I really agreed with that. Now, I had mentioned that to somebody else in the space. I said, you know, this feels different. There's all this infrastructure that's been built. And they had responded, well, I don't really think there's been that much infrastructure built in terms of Bitcoin. Look at Ethereum. You mentioned smart contracts, Zach, and smart contracts are huge. Ethereum's huge. It totally fuels defi right and all the defi tokens everything seems to be built on ethereum but bitcoin is kind of just doing its thing where now bitcoin just kind of seems like an investment token it's the og token and it seems like it's a good investment token but in terms of actually changing it up and advancing the technology it seems like that kind of award goes to ethereum and some some of the other tokens would you guys do you guys have any opinions on that
2: yes i agree with that i mean Bitcoin, I think your OG designation is a good one. That Mm -hmm. is people trust it to be relatively less volatile than a lot of the others out there. And that it'll always be there. But I mean, just by design, it's more inert. It is just track how many of these things you own. It doesn't do things the way an Ethereum does. And yes, there's been a lot of expansion in what one can do with tokens. So I see the kinds of tokens that our clients are issuing are more complicated than they were before. It's not just give us some money and you get shares of our company. You can do more things with them with a series of of payouts over time with responses to events in the real world and all the rest. And yes, when you mention infrastructure, I mean, Tether's been there forever. People had questions about just its governance, but now there are plenty of stable coins out there. You can find ways to trade in and out of crypto while still steering clear of fiat and remaining on chain I mean, yes. A few years ago, cross-chain swaps were still more of a question mark. There were tax questions about getting into and out of of crypto that I think have been clarified a lot now. And the whole industry feels more mature, even if the hype of 2017 is no longer there and Mm -hmm. people are realizing that blockchain has not solved every, every problem. Mm -hmm. There's a realization that
0: it solves plenty of problems and
2: you should really use it.
0: Yeah, I I agree with you there. I do think that a lot of people in the industry do like to push the idea that blockchain and crypto can solve everything, Um, but you're right. It doesn't, but it does solve a lot of things. Um, Andrew, I want to go to you. What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I think that for all the points that that he had mentioned, that this is a very different situation, but there is also still value in Bitcoin, in the old OG. It is Mm -hmm. in many ways the gold standard, it is what financial institutions look to. And even we've seen companies that have moved their treasuries from fiat in some instances to Bitcoin, even rather than a stable coin uh, in some instances to Bitcoin. And so while it hasn't necessarily changed over the years in what it does, it still serves a a very valid uh, and strong purpose. Um, and And so... Yes, I would agree that Ethereum has shined over the last few years in use cases Mm -hmm. and being able to actually uh, show how blockchain can implement smart contracts and DeFi has been the runaway star of recent years in implementing use cases of blockchain. We've essentially been able to bypass financial institutions and create a system where we can Give interest, people can take loans and so forth, mm-hmm. um, which you know was always a concept that was discussed. And uh, exchanges like Uniswap did exist a couple of years ago, but really, I think it was 2020 that we see we saw a lot of these companies um, become much more formalized, and this proof of concept not only just become theoretical, but used widely uh, by people in, in crypto.
0: Yeah. I think when it comes to Bitcoin, I think we can also just say it's just the easiest token. That's why it's so mainstream. It's just, you know, everything with DeFi, there's so much there. But for the average consumer who doesn't know anything about cryptocurrency, that's going to be hard to get into. And and I'm sure that'll change as the years go on and as trends change and technologies change. But as of now, I mean, you can look at Bitcoin from multiple different perspectives, from big investors to small investors. Look at Cash App, for example. It's an app you know, used to send money that's common among you know, millennials and Gen Z. And, and that has the ability to buy Bitcoin super easily. It's a yeah. great on-ramp to just invest a little bit of Bitcoin and that brings people into the fold and it brings a lot of people into the fold. And now PayPal is kind of doing the same thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think Cash App has its own demographics. Robinhood also, um, PayPal. Um, So I think these are all new on-ramps for a period of time. Coinbase was one of the top downloaded apps on the Apple uh, App Store. So yeah, I completely agree. I think that there's so much more adoption and it's also just available in all of these different forms where it's easy to buy Bitcoin if you want, not only through Bitcoin ATMs, which there are more and more of nowadays, uh, but even through apps that you may otherwise have.
0: Any predictions for what's next as like the next on-ramp? Because as we mentioned, there's PayPal, there's Cash App, there's Robinhood. It's so easy to buy crypto now. And and Andrew, you mentioned ATMs. That was kind of like the on-ramp predecessor to some of those apps I just mentioned. Is there a prediction for what on-ramp is next and getting people into crypto a lot easier and in, uh, in a very simple streamlined way? Any predictions? I'm just going to brainstorm here. I mean... I'm biased toward finance
2: because I see, I work in that space. So I think that we will see greater expansion of that. I would love to see if some of the stimulus checks that come out from the government, some of that come through some kind of crypto. I would like to see increased adoption of some kind of at least pilot program of digital assets from the government, a central currency kind of thing. I'm not saying you going to replace the dollar, but some kind of adoption in that direction. I think just increased comfort with what's already there could you know easily quadruple Adoption by retail investors and just ordinary consumers of Bitcoin in the coming year. That is, I could see that just imagine transparency, the kinds of just Amazon transactions and such that people, people use right now. If people get comfortable using Bitcoin for those, as more and more retailers accept it and such, more and more payment systems allow it, I think that can, without any, any great changes, lead to more, Adoption, then technology-wise or industry-wise, logistics and um, real estate seem like natural expansion areas for blockchain. That'll require some changes of law on the real estate side, but it seems like a natural sort of next step in how
0: we can how we can use this. Those are a few things that come to mind for me. Yeah, I mean, I you brought up Amazon, and I, I think that would be great. And that's kind of what I wanted to get from you guys is I think Amazon would be huge if Amazon. I mean, I'm sure you can pay. I'm sure there's ways to use crypto on Amazon. I know for a fact there are services out there that allow you to do that. But just like an actual integration into Amazon to pay via crypto would be pretty huge. I think, Andrew, any any takes, any uh, opinions on what could be next? Any desires for what would help uh, bring adoption quickly? Sure.
1: So to kind of switch back to the tax perspective, I think one of the biggest limitations to adoption is tax treatment. When you have to calculate a gain or a loss every time you buy a cup of coffee or purchase a roll of toilet paper on Amazon, that's a pain. Mm -hmm. That's something that people don't want to deal with. I can use a credit card and not have to deal with tax implications, or I can use cash and not have to deal with it. But if I use Bitcoin or I use a credit card tied to a Bitcoin wallet, there may be a gain or a loss on that purchase. Um, And and so having to deal with that, I think, is a big limitation. Uh, I'm hopeful that the government in the future will enact legislation to minimize or blunt that problem. Other countries have, for example, Germany has a de minimis law, where if a transaction is under a certain amount in crypto then the gain or loss isn't reported. That would spur adoption. And, you know, hopefully there, there are also optimistic signs with the new administration coming in. Uh, the leading contender for Biden's uh, treasury secretary, I'm going to pronounce the name wrong, Lael Brainard um, is the central bank's expert on all things digital currency. Um, and so to have that individual as the new treasury secretary, Will hopefully bring a new focus towards cryptocurrency, but I think it will require a legislative push towards adoption because that's also what I, um, it relatedly, what killed, in my view, Facebook's Libra. One from the security side of what they were trying to do, but more so from the tax side to have a, their own token that was a basket of currencies was going to create a tax disaster for anyone using it. So. If Facebook, which I think is another example, Facebook started to allow Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies to be transacted, drop the Libra idea of creating your own, but just allow Bitcoin on there, that would spur adoption. Um, so I think that would be a great thing. But overall, I think we need change at a government level to support reasonable changes in legislation, simple things like the minimis thresholds Uh, not to go too far off tangent, but even the taxation of proof of stake. Proof of stake is going to be uh, the new system for blockchain technologies, moving away from proof of work. Mm -hmm. The uh, problem with both of these, but but more so a proof of stake, is you are taxed on all of your rewards as you receive it, not when you sell it. This is different than harvesting crops. This is different than pulling gold out of the ground. In those situations, you're taxed when you sell it. Here in a proof of stake, when you are contributing to the ecosystem, creating new coins, you're going to be taxed upon receipt, not when you sell it. Again, something that's gonna potentially drive down adoption.
0: You're gonna get taxed on both, right? You're gonna get taxed on when you receive it and then when you sell it as well. Absolutely. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So you bring up an interesting point about gold and, you know, I don't have much information about that. Uh, but in terms of crypto, when, when people started coming to us and asking about proof of stake and, hey, what do I do with my proof of stake rewards? To me, it just seemed like second nature. Like, yes, of course, you're going to get taxed as income on those on those proof of stake rewards. Um, but what you're kind of saying is that it's not fair. It, it, well, you know, I'm kind of paraphrasing what you're saying here, but that maybe that's something that should be changed. And of course, there's people that don't like it, but isn't it commonplace at this point in crypto that that's just like, that's just kind of one of the crappy things that we have to accept is like, we're just going to get taxed on it. Do you think it's realistic that it's going to get changed? I mean, does a, a politician even know what proof of stake is at this point? It's
1: all great questions. And so you know, uh, Obviously, I've been dealing in crypto for years. And I would say that we have taken over the years fairly conservative positions. Things like crypto to crypto transactions. You know, I was at conferences and answering consultations for years telling people it's taxable. It's taxable. Mm-hmm. Um, even before the IRS came out and defined it as such. I don't think that's going to change. Crypto to crypto, I don't think that's going to change. I think it makes sense. It's logical there are other uh, areas of law that when applied to crypto seem to be punitive and to not achieve the desired outcome, number one, uh, of that law, but also seem to drive down a technology that could have a lot of great uses, especially towards um, people that couldn't have bank accounts, uh, people that receive stimulus checks uh, and had to go to a, a cash checking service and give up 20% of it. Um, there's, there's all these different ways that blockchain technology can benefit the world uh, benefit us. It will just take taking a look at legislation and applying common sense in some regard and, and saying, does this application actually fit what we're trying to achieve? And yes, there are some again, that makes sense. Crypto to crypto. I don't think it should change. But other areas um, such as de minimis law, Mm -hmm. I don't think that that would create any harm. I think it would also drive up compliance. A lot of people don't report their crypto trades because they've got thousands of small trades and for whatever reason, they don't do it. So I think having hopefully individuals in government that can logically look at crypto and analyze it, maybe there can be changes in the future um, with respect to some of these areas.
0: And so that's a great transition. And Zach, I know that both you and I were talking a little bit about this before um, we started recording, but the political aspect of cryptocurrency, there's a new administration coming in and A lot of the stuff that Andrew just mentioned, like a de minimis, that would be great. And that doesn't seem like that would be that difficult to implement. Well, I don't really know, obviously, from a legislative perspective, but it does seem like it would answer a lot of the questions, i.e. using uh, crypto on Amazon, for example. It would kind of solve that issue for the most part, or it would be one of the solutions to that issue. But there is a new administration coming in. Currently in government, there are some crypto enthusiasts. The one example I like to bring up all the time And, you know, I try not to skew too negatively, but I love to bring up this example is is Kelly Loeffler. She is a Georgia Senator for now. There's going to be a runoff election, obviously, but she was the CEO of Back. You would think that she would bring about crypto legislation, given her background being the CEO of a cryptocurrency exchange, but she hasn't. There's really been no cryptocurrency legislation or discussion coming from her. You know, I, I always bring that up as an example because it's like, you would think she would bring us some cryptocurrency adoption, but that hasn't been the case. So there's a new administration coming into town. There's some new senators coming in. Let's first start with the transition team, right? Biden recently appointed somebody um, that is going to be a part of his transition team. Gary Gensler. Gary Gensler, right. And Gary Gensler has a lot of cryptocurrency background. Do you know much about Gary Gensler, Zach? So
2: yes, he used to be among other things, the chairman of the CFTC. So he mm-hmm. comes from that kind of background. Uh, but he's, he's been government before that too. So he knows from finance and crypto also. And I think people view him as generally pro-crypto or at least crypto savvy. Now, I think some people merge those two concepts and I think we need a more nuanced concept of this. So for example, um, Gary Gensler, was one of the people who said that Libra should be treated as a security. Now, to be clear, I think that's a wholly reasonable position. I'm not saying that it shouldn't be. But I think some people have a knee-jerk reaction of assuming that tech savvy implies entirely laissez-faire with respect to blockchain. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily the case. But at least, yes, Gary Gensler, I think, understands digital assets. And he does figure to play a prominent role in the transition team. And we'll see beyond that. There are various other people also that uh, President-elect Biden has brought in who... I think, favor greater clarity on and focus on blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies, digital assets. So Andrew mentioned Lael Brainard earlier, if she does become treasury secretary, given her experience with digital currencies, just at the Fed, I think that could mean more. So expansion of that pilot program and just more focus from the government side on cryptocurrencies, but various other people. I mean, so Hester Pierce is apparently staying on at the SEC through the end of the coming presidential term. She has been pro-crypto the whole time. And so we'd see more sandboxes, I think, and such if she stays around there. Um, Senator Elizabeth Warren, I think, is likely to push for greater consumer protections after the assault on the CFPB under President Trump. So... Also, just sticking with her usual focus, I would anticipate that she'd be pushing for technical changes to antitrust laws, which uh, when we look at big tech, that's something the two parties can agree on in some ways. That is, I wouldn't expect a lot of huge changes in the next two years. And for that matter, if history holds and Republicans make gains in 2022 for the next four years, given divided government or at least government that's balanced on a knife edge in Congress, Mm-hmm. but there are some areas where the two sides come together. So for example, just like Republicans have questions about big tech because they view it as biased against the right. Democrats see it as a challenge to privacy mm-hmm. and a traditional monopoly. They might have have concerns over. So that could be an area. If blockchain is viewed as a la Libra, a tool of big tech, then I think it could be subject to greater regulation and control in the coming years. If rather it's viewed as you know, the tool of disruptive new entrance, contrary to big banks that oppose it and such, then I think you could see letting a thousand flowers bloom. i will love to see how that pl- plays out.
0: There was a Bloomberg article recently that discussed how Gary Gensler and Preet Bahara are two potential candidates for the head of the SEC.
2: Right. So if Gary Gensler takes that position, I think that, that's, that's a, that would be sort of a pro-crypto development. If If it goes the other way, then, I mean, given Barra's background as a prosecutor, that suggests greater enforcement. Though I would expect, I anticipate regardless of changes to laws and regulations, some enforcement, some increased enforcement in the coming years. I mean, DeFi as it grows, thus far it's been small enough to sort of keep its head under the parapet, but as it grows, I think the activities there clearly implicate areas that regulators have traditionally monitored, and they look to protect consumers. Now we're getting to retail investors who touch this. So there is a need for protection there. The question has not been what they're doing and hence whether those are regulated activities, rather who's doing them. So if you have an exchange that that presents itself rather just as a protocol where it's just come one, come all. We're not any entity that does this. We just list the protocol. If you can figure out how to trade there, good luck. Someone is probably going to start watching over that. So I think that we will see
0: more enforcement there under the new administration as well. So real quick, before I go to Andrew on this, do you think that Andrew Yang has any place in this administration? Do you think, because he's, he was one of the few candidates, democratic candidates that really took any stance on crypto one way or the other. He's talked a lot about crypto. So do you think he has any chance of getting a place in the administration? I would love to see him have
2: one. I mean, I think he's well-known in Democratic circles as someone who thinks deeply about these issues and has thought about them in advance. It was a little surprising to me, or perhaps disappointing, that he didn't have a speaking role at the Democratic National Mm -hmm. Convention. I Mm -hmm. think that might point to his being on the outs with the Biden team. I don't know if they're trying to steer clear of universal basic income as just too close to socialism and Mm -hmm. hurting them in the midterms and such, and just trying to steer a more moderate course. I'm not sure there. I think um, clearly he brings a lot of knowledge to this and I'd love to see him have a role. What that role will
0: be, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I'm staying optimistic. I mean, you know, obviously, government is government is government. And it's like, you can be hopeful and you can be optimistic, but everything is incredibly slow in government. And who knows, maybe none of this will ever happen. But nothing happened with this last administration in terms of too much cryptocurrency um, adoption or really positive moves forward from a government perspective. So I guess all we can do is hope that this administration will have some positive moves forward. Andrew, I'm curious to hear your take on, on this.
1: So I think Zach did an excellent job of talking through the different proposed candidates for uh, administrative positions. But one of the changes that will impact crypto investors is part of uh, Biden's proposed tax plan. And under this, uh, if you are making more than a million dollars, then you would actually see an increase in your capital gains tax, which if you sell cryptocurrency, you are uh, taxed at capital gains rates which vary depending on if it's a short-term or long-term transaction. And so under the Biden tax plan, if you're making more than a million dollars and you sold your crypto long-term, generally a year or more, you're taxed at the same tax rates as your ordinary income, same tax rates as short-term gains. Hmm. So from a tax planning perspective, If you are in that tax bracket, you're making more than a million dollars, including crypto trades, then you may want to consider selling those long-term holdings this year um, before potentially tax changes occur for the 2021 or future tax years. Now, of course, you have to make your own investment decisions, but from a tax planning standpoint, there may be benefits to selling this year. And of course, you can still buy back later on um, and we could talk about the different implications of uh, the wash sale rules and how that applies. But you can buy back later on. So if you don't want to completely exit your position, um, you can at least sell this year and then buy back in the future.
0: Yeah, it makes total sense. I mean, we're talking to a very kind of limited number of people here that are making over a million dollars with their income, but that's pretty interesting that if you're making over a million dollars, you'll be taxed at the same rate as short-term gains on your long-term gains. So yeah, maybe before that, maybe before the Biden administration comes in and puts that in place, it might not be a bad idea if you're making that money to get rid of those long-term gains now to get that that lower tax rate.
1: And it sounds crazy. It sounds like you know there's probably not a lot of people listening out there. But again, we're at an all time high or close Mm -hmm. to it. And so there are people that at least their crypto uh, wealth uh, could be in in the millions of dollars. And so if you're thinking about when to sell, you could be potentially cutting your tax in about half um, by taking advantage of the current long term tax rates, rather than uh, the future proposed tax rates.
0: Yeah, very good point. Uh, Zach, any uh, feedback on that? I know you come from more of a traditional financial kind of background. So any, um, any thoughts on that, uh, on the capital gains rate? Well, I agree entirely. That is, if,
2: if there is to be the change that Andrew is describing, then it would make sense to take advantage of those rates while you can. I'm not sure how many tax changes will actually go through, given the divided Congress and such. The law can happen th- from the IRS itself. But yes, if that is coming, if, that, if that's in the offing, then take advantage of the current lower uh, capital gains rates while you can. Hmm. And seem, I, mean, I am not one to give tax advice, both because I am not qualified to, and it's not the kind of thing I should do on a podcast to thousands <laughs> of people I,
0: of course. I know
2: nothing about. Of course. But in isolation, that sounds rational to me.
0: Yeah, it's it's just it's just logical, right? Like of course none of this is tax advice. Um, you know, most of our listeners, any any new listeners that are here, then yes, of course not tax advice. All right, so let's uh let's move on to tax planning because we've been talking a little while. I'd love to keep talking more like I said about political aspects of crypto. Maybe we can have another discussion uh, you know, in a few weeks, but let's for now move on to tax planning, which a lot of people don't take advantage of maybe they don't fully understand, but I think I'm going to move to Andrew on this because he has an expertise in this area. So Andrew, talk us through crypto tax planning, why it's important this time of the year and what people should know.
1: Sure. So the year is, uh, believe it or not, winding down. Um, we're going into December and a lot of people make the mistake of only worrying about crypto transactions or the reconciliation of their, uh, trades after the year ends. And while it is required to report it on your tax return for the full year, and you do need all the trades for the full year, there's a lot of tax planning opportunities that exist right now or before the year ends. Um, And so let's talk through some of those. And first of all, the best way to understand where you are at and what types of things you can take advantage of is to reconcile your activity through the present date. So using Bitcoin.tax, you don't have to wait till the end of the year. Reconcile now and get an understanding of what your current gains or losses are. And very importantly, what your holding position is. And on Bitcoin.tax, on the reports tab, there's a great report, which is a closing report. And on it, you can see what your unrealized gains or losses are. And so this is the first tip that I have for everyone in terms of year-end planning. And that's tax loss harvesting and tax loss harvesting refers to selling crypto that uh, is currently in an unrealized loss position to realize that loss so that you could take that loss and either use it to offset current year gains. You can offset up to $3,000 of ordinary income that was also incurred, or you can carry forward those losses to future year gains. So, Perhaps you're holding Bitcoin that today is in a massive gain position, but then you're also holding crap coins that you bought years ago that you just continued to hold. The value's tanked, and so it's at a massive unrealized loss. You can sell those crap coins today, realize that loss, and then use that loss to offset either gains from the sale of Bitcoin this year or other cryptocurrencies this year, or even gains in future years because that loss can be carried forward. So if you sell in future years, you can use that loss against it too. So by reconciling your activity now and understanding your unrealized losses, you can harvest these losses uh, that can be used against gains. So that's one of the best strategies I have. And that must happen before the year ends. You can't come to us January, February with massive gains from Bitcoin while you have unrealized losses and say, well, I wish I took those losses before, let's do it now. It doesn't work that way. You can't carry the losses backwards. You could only carry them forwards. So you have to do it before the year ends. Um, So that's one great strategy. Uh, Another one is if you are sitting on appreciated crypto, again, said it many times, we're at very high prices of Bitcoin and other crypto today. But if you're sitting at, uh, on crypto that has appreciated, rather than selling and realizing that gain and then paying taxes on it, you can donate that crypto to a charity and you will get a tax deduction for the fair market value of that crypto. So say for example, you bought Bitcoin when it was at $1,000 dollars today it's at 18. you donate that Bitcoin to a charity, you'd get a deduction. For uh, the, the fair market value of eighteen thousand, not of what you bought it for. If you sold it for cash and then donated cash, or you just sold it in general and had cash, then you would pay tax on that spread. So, donating appreciated currency to charities is sometimes a good tax planning strategy, but must um, take into consideration your overall tax strategy and whether or not you even want to donate to charities overall. Um, but that's another way that you can minimize your tax liability without incurring gains.
0: And I'd like to interject uh, just real quick. Thank you for that that great information. But I'd like to interject and say, if you are considering donating, check out bitgivefoundation.org. The CEO is Connie Gallippi, She's been on the podcast twice. She started the first Bitcoin 501c3, the first Bitcoin nonprofit. They're all in on cryptocurrency. They take crypto donations. They had a COVID-19 relief fund. They do People in Afghanistan that want to learn to code. There's a lot of different charities you can donate to on BitGive, but BitGive itself is all in on cryptocurrency, all in on Bitcoin, and takes those crypto donations. So if you're looking to donate, actually, we have a, kind of a widget on bitcoin.tax on the reports tab that if you do want to donate to BitGive, you can click right on your reports tab. And we do that only because BitGive is really such a great organization. I mean, they care, and I'm not trying to like advertise for them here, but they care so much about cryptocurrency adoption and they care about helping other people. It's like, that's, you, you can't go wrong supporting a company like that, in my opinion. So if you're looking to do what Andrew said, check out BitGive, uh, Foundation.org. Andrew, sorry to interject, please. Uh, yeah, no, no problem.
1: Yeah. And, and I, I guess just to kind of close that thought, if you are going to donate, it is imperative that you donate in the cryptocurrency and that the, the charity accepts cryptocurrency rather than just fiat. Because if you have to sell the fiat and then donate the fiat, well, then you've, incurred the the taxable event.
0: Yeah, if you donate to BitGiv, they actually sit on the uh, Bitcoin for the most part. They sit on it and then they handle all the sales. So you don't have to worry about that. So it works perfectly in line with what Andrew is um, saying. So Zach, would you have any questions that you would have for Andrew that somebody in the traditional financial space might have?
2: Okay, so let me ask just clarification on one thing Andrew was just saying there, if I could please. So certainly I understand if you sell your crypto and then donate it, you have the taxable event and then some partially offsetting deduction. Are you saying if you donate it without selling it, you can get a deduction mm-hmm. that actually offsets other gains elsewhere? So you had a sort of negative income right there?
1: So uh, let's do a hypo. You bought Bitcoin at a thousand, today it's 18,000, okay? You donate it, donate the Bitcoin, one Bitcoin to BitGive. You will get a itemized deduction, on your tax return of $18,000, period.
2: Easy enough. All (laughs) right, Uh, let's see.
1: That that also follows the same rules for stocks. It's the same thing with stocks. And so um, a lot of people donate stocks or securities to charities rather than cash because they get that step up. They get the fair market value of their deduction.
2: All right, great. And another thing our clients often run into is they are holding investments in international funds, that is offshore funds and such, or funds that in, in turn buy things offshore and all the rest. When it comes to crypto, if they're, if they're holding tokens that they purchase while they're in the US, but this is issued abroad or the, the administrator is somehow abroad, how does this figure into their taxes? Is there any, any exposure to those other countries' tax laws based on just where the issuers are?
1: So, Zach, you're talking about how a U.S. person would perhaps have a foreign investment company that they're operating, or are you talking about someone just investing in a foreign business?
2: Well, I guess either could be interesting here. That is, we have plenty of clients that invest in traditional businesses or operate traditional businesses abroad. But when they start dealing with digital assets, they start asking where these transactions really take place? If there is some event through a smart contract, where does that transpire? If they have some proof of stake, where do they realize those gains? If they invest in a company that trades on some distributed exchange and they realize gains through that, where do those take place? So to what extent are they exposed to tax laws abroad when it is through crypto as opposed to traditional finance?
1: Great question. And just to kind of expand on that, say perhaps you're a US person, you set up a mining operation in Bermuda, you set up a mining operation on a barge floating around in the sea. I've even been asked the question, if I want to set up a node on the moon, <laughs> how, how is that taxed? And it's driven by a couple of things. The main factor is the tax residency of the owner Someone must ultimately own these businesses or these operations, be it on the moon or anywhere. And if the tax residency of that individual is U.S., then they're subject to U.S. taxation. And that's because the U.S. taxes on a worldwide basis. It's one of the few countries that do that. So if you're a U.S. person, U.S. citizen, green card holder, resident, um, doesn't matter where the activity is being conducted, you as the owner are subject to U.S. laws. So that's the first factor. The other element is where is the actual activity taking place? And so that may add another layer of taxation. Um, And and so maybe you are being taxed both there and the U.S. Um, Or depending on how the structure is set up, there's potential credits and so forth. So the two fundamental questions are, what is the tax residency of the owner? Where is the activity taking place? Um, But for U.S. persons often the answer is the IRS's uh, hands will will be on your activity no matter where it occurs. IRS is very different than securities laws, um, which don't have necessarily all all of these, but have different types of implications. I think, Zach, you could probably speak to to those, which are more driven based on where the investment is taking place or, or who is
2: investing. Andrew knows me well that I live in the securities land, and so I deal with different jurisdictional questions. The U.S. tries to ex- extend its jurisdiction as much as to on the security side as well, but the particular logic varies SEC versus IRS.
0: You know, I certainly don't have the uh, same expertise as either of you guys, but I've been talking to a lot of experts for a couple of years now. And I'll say that in terms of foreign holdings, um, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I know that if you do have holdings in cryptocurrency exchanges that are overseas, you'll have to look into filling out an FBAR if they exceed a certain amount. I think it's like $10,000. But I know that FBAR and um, FinCEN, those come into play when you're talking about foreign exchanges and holding cryptocurrencies on those foreign exchanges. If I'm wrong, let me know.
1: Yeah, no, Nacelle, you got it. I would say that that is one of the few gray areas of crypto tax law that remain that the IRS and Treasury and FinCEN have had ample opportunity to explicitly address, and they haven't. And what we're talking about is if you're conducting uh, trades or you have accounts on foreign exchanges, if that needs to be reported on two different forms, one called an FBAR and one called FATCA form. Mm -hmm. Uh, F-B-A-R and the other F-A-T-C-A. And this remains gray, and we would generally err on the side of caution and advise our clients to file Because these two forms are disclosures that just require that the maximum account balance in the account be disclosed, but there's no tax. On the other hand, if the IRS later a year from now or FinCEN says, yep, it's required, it always was required, we just didn't tell you explicitly, (laughs) but the law was always there that it was required, then there can be significant penalties for not filing or filing late. So we would generally suggest to file it, but it does remain gray. There was some commentary by an IRS representative at a conference that has been cited many times on the internet where that representative said FBAR was not required, but I can't take uh, what was said at a conference as guidance. Again, they've had many opportunities. They haven't come forth and said it.
0: Thank you so much for clarifying. And we've had a few podcasts about that. And generally I always used to give the same kind of mantra of better safe than sorry. And especially when there's no tax involved, it doesn't really seem like it would be a bad idea to do it, especially when there is a penalty for not doing it or potentially a penalty for not doing it. Um, that's something I used to say all the time back in older podcasts, better safe than sorry, take the conservative approach to avoid penalties, avoid fees. Um, of course, not everybody's going to do that, but that seems to be sound, uh, sound advice. But all right, guys, that's been some really good information. I appreciate both of you coming on. I think we've been talking for close to an hour now. Um, I could really talk a lot longer, so we'll have to have you guys both on again. But is there any closing comments, any closing questions, anything you guys want to add to this conversation before we close it out? I'll start with you, uh, Zach.
2: Well, I tell you. So first of all, thanks again for having me. And Mm -hmm. I like the sound of coming back here. There there are enough changes in this industry that there will be more to talk about all too soon, I'm sure. Just in case any folks in the Biden administration are listening, I have sort of a wish list I can share. So, I would love if they could start approving Reg A STOs faster. That is, there are all these entrepreneurs and companies that are trying to do the right thing by acknowledging that their tokens are securities and making them available to people other than just accredited investors while providing a reasonable level of financial disclosures. We should be encouraging those people rather than slowing them down. So, I'd like to see Reg A issuances get approved faster. Similarly, I'd love to see crypto ETFs, and mutual funds get approved faster. I mean, the Winklevoss twins uh, bent over backwards, to get this done and still ran into roadblock after roadblock. Uh, the investing public is coming to understand crypto and the offering materials include reams of disclosures typically regarding crypto. So sooner or later, we're gonna have to trust that investors can look after themselves. Maybe to put some kind of black box warning like caution crypto on offerings if you must, <laughs> but then trust that the people who still invest can look after their own interests you know, absent fraud and gross mismanagement and such, rather than just block them entirely. I would also love to see more clarity on custody issues, clear guidance on, on that. So I don't want to receive more phone calls from clients wondering how to interpret rule 15C3-3 in the crypto world. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that, you know, clear guidance can sometimes open the door to regulatory arbitrage, but uncertainty just hamstrings the whole crypto finance industry. And in that corner of the rules, more generally, I would just say, let's have more clarity. So Andrew said that there was this one area left in the tax space where crypto was still sort of gray. I think there are more areas in the SEC and CFTC space where there's a lack of clarity. And I'd like to see some more of those ironed out in the coming year, as well as at the state level with money transmitter licenses and such. So that's not so much a Biden administration question as just wish for anyone. So I hope that... As new folks come in who are perhaps more willing to allow tech-savvy folks into the administration, maybe we can clear up some of these unknowns and help to make sure that the blockchain innovations that are coming will take place
0: here rather than decamping offshore. I found it interesting that you said that in terms of securities, there's a lot more gray area. I would argue, from my perspective, it seems like regulation gets pushed out a little bit more regularly in the SEC. There could definitely be more gray area, but it does seem like regulation happens more regularly with the SEC than taxation rulings occur with the IRS, which seem to happen once every five years. Whereas with the SEC, with you know the whole ICO craze, they cracked right down on that, and they, they stepped right in and, and got to business. Um, would you agree with that or?
2: Oh, it's definitely true. And I mean, people have gotten the memo on the Howey test now that here's how you tell something is a security. And so mm-hmm. some things have been cleared up, but then you have issues out there. Like, again, we talked about DeFi. I mean, if you wanted today in the traditional way to launch a stock exchange, there is a well-defined way to do that, but it ain't easy. It's expensive. You have to go through a lot of regulatory hoops to make that happen. But what if instead you say, I'm going to launch a crypto exchange. That is, I want, to, I want to facilitate trading on the blockchain. In fact, don't even call it an exchange. Just call it a protocol. Just say, here's how we're going to communicate with the other, all of us here who want to trade these things. And you know what we're going to trade? We're going to trade wrapped securities. So we're going to mm-hmm. trade a swap, call it maybe not a swap, call it what you want, but some kind of contract enclosed in a token that represents an interest in an old school security. And we're not going to have any kind of meeting place where this buying and selling takes place. We're just going to say here, if you want to communicate with people, here's how this happens. And lo and behold, nodes spring up, people start communicating in this fashion over the, over Ethereum, whichever blockchain, and trades in the economic equivalent of securities transpire. And there's not been any kind of official registration of an exchange. Things like this, DeFi back alley approaches to get around traditional regulation. That's why I say there are gray areas. So such areas as the SEC has pronounced on, yes, they've been good about clarifying that this is something, this is something. Now to be clear, just because they say it, doesn't make it so. These have not all been tested in court and people can still come back and say, I think the SEC has overreached and that's very possible. But the SEC has in many areas made clear what it thinks about the crypto space. But then there are areas where, yes, that has yet to come. DeFi is a famous one, but there is, more clarification to come. I mentioned briefly the CFTC with regard to futures on, on various tokens, so this is not the end of history.
0: Yeah, of course, and, and I'm curious, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if the SEC, just like they pounced on ICOs and penalized people who uh, operated ICOs and you know, celebrities who advertised ICOs, I wonder if DeFi will be the new thing they pounce on. But uh, you know, let's save that for next time. Let's save that conversation for next time. I, it's a great conversation. Andrew, I wanna to go to you, Any closing comments, any closing kind of statements, anything else you want to say about everything we've talked about?
1: Yeah, I I think just to follow this, actually, just to recap a few suggestions or requests, my wish list for the Biden administration. Um, And I I think number one would be to implement some sort of de minimis exception, say $100, anything, any crypto transaction under $100 doesn't need to be reported. Say that's number one. Number two is to treat proof of stake uh, not as taxed upon receipt of the reward, but taxed upon sale to be more akin to farming or actual mining in the sense of uh, mining for gold or silver, things like that. Mm -hmm. So I think that's number two. Um, Number three would be a government initiative to require better reporting on crypto transactions by the crypto exchanges. Right now, U.S. crypto exchanges provide a form 1099-K to certain users and to the IRS. Um, And this form only shows the total proceeds or transaction volume that went through the exchange. It's a very misleading form that's led to a lot of issues for uh, crypto investors, clients of ours, that the IRS thinks they owe a lot more than they actually do. And that's just because of poor reporting, um, requirements. It, was, it wasn't until uh, just a few years ago, um, maybe less than 10 years, that uh, financial institutions, brokerage firms, were required to report basis on trades. Um, and before then, individuals were just responsible for tracking their own basis. Hmm. Um, but the reporting of basis made it a lot easier. Now you just take a, uh, your 1099B from uh, Merrill Lynch or Charles Schwab or Robin Hood and you give that to your accountant and it's very easy it is possible uh, within just for example Coinbase if, as long as uh, transactions just occurred within Coinbase to prepare a 1099b and maybe there's a way to have an initiative between exchanges where if crypto was transferred that the cost basis was communicated so a form 1099b can be created so, a new initiative for better reporting to make it easier on the government, make it also easier on the users. So, that's number three. And then, in closing, clarity on the FBAR FATCA thing. Mm-hmm. There's no reason that there hasn't been a determination and that it's not just explicitly said because the, the law is there, it can be interpreted, but we need clarity. Great. So those are my items.
0: I appreciate those. And to a uh, quick touch on, just like I, I did with Zach's points, I want to quick touch on two things from my perspective. The 1099K, those things are awful. <laughs> as you kind of mentioned, I mean, it's, a, it's unfortunate that these exchanges are giving them to people and you know, just scaring them and making them feel as though the IRS is thinking they're making $600,000 when those are their proceeds and their cost basis is $650,000. So they've actually lost $50,000. So of course, those are just example numbers, but we've had plenty of customers come to us Scared about their 1099 Ks. And some of the time, the exchanges don't even list the fees. So it's just the proceeds and not even taking account the fees that people paid for those cryptocurrency trades. They don't deduct those, which you're supposed to because those aren't proceeds, fees that you paid for the the trade. However, that's just my opinion. The 1099 Ks are just kind of a mess. And then you mentioned uh, cryptocurrency exchanges kind of getting together and maybe reporting um, cost basis to one another. I think that would be amazing i think i've seen almost every csv almost every export from many many exchanges and there really does need to be some unity these things are sloppy they for the amount of volume and customers that some of these exchanges have there is no excuse for the exports that they provide of their data um, and they really need to work on that and uh that would be great if that actually happened but you know for the past few years it's been kind of like man You can't, sometimes you can't trust some of these um, exports and it's, it's unfortunate. So I I agree with uh, what you said though, Andrew, and thank you. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, thank you again, both of you for coming. Um, Zach, I want to send it over to you. Tell us any way to contact you, your website, your social medias, any way you'd prefer for somebody listening, if they want to get in touch with you or if they want to find out more information, what's the best way to do that?
2: All right. Well, thank you. So the hard part is spelling my name. Zachary, you can guess, is Z-A-C-H-A-R-Y, and Zilliak is less obvious, just Z-I-L-I-A-K, so Z is in zebra, I-L-I-A-K, and then everything follows from that, whether it's Zilliak.com, our website, at Zilliak, my Twitter, at Zilliak Law, the law firm's Twitter, Zachary at Zilliak.com, my email address, it's all sort of straight from my name, so if you get past that, you're in good shape, and I'd love to hear from anyone.
0: Perfect. Perfect. And we'll, we'll list it just as I, I'll say with Andrew, we'll list it on the website too, for sure. Oh, well, so that's easy. For any spelling, it'll be, it'll be easier, but anybody that's just primarily listening, it's good that you spelled it out. Um, all right. And thank you. And so Andrew, same question to you. Best way to get in touch. More info.
1: Yeah. Uh, the best way is our website, GordonlawLtd.com. And from there, you can also connect to all of our social media, which is mainly Gordon law, Ltd. On our social media accounts, on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, we have tons and tons of crypto videos, informational content uh, about crypto, taxation of crypto. And so there's a lot of questions that you can answer yourself just by viewing our content.
0: Yes. And I would actually, I've never said this, but I would say that Andrew Gordon is probably the content king in terms of guests that we've had on this podcast, because he does put out tons of good content, great videos. Um, so definitely check out his Facebook page. If you want to see those videos, check out his website. And also he's uh, our full service partner. So if you want to have your taxes taken care of, you can sign up to our full service, which is bitcoin.tax slash full service. And we can get you in touch with a great tax professional. And Andrew is one of those great tax professionals. So thank you both again very much for being here. Thank you everybody for listening. Make sure you stay tuned for more episodes of the Bitcoin Taxes podcast and be sure to tune in for the Cryptocurrency Informer, which is a mini news podcast where we discuss some of the ongoings in the crypto and blockchain related spaces. All right, guys. Thank you again so much. Thank you very much. Thank you,
2: Sal.